our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee as we gather together in thy name. That thou hast given unto us Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That in him we have remission of sins and newness of life. And are freed from the power of sin and death. Make us strong, therefore, our Father, in this faith. Unto the end that we may serve thee faithfully, and that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let us turn to Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. We shall begin today a series of studies in the biblical treatment of guilt, atonement, justification. Those of you who have read my book on Freud know the answer that has been given by modern science to the subject. We shall analyze now the biblical answer this afternoon and for several weeks to come. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were a stony to see, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and of tainted with grief. And we put, as it were, our faces on him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. 
for the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and the physician his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bear the sin of men, and make intercession for the transgressors. When we deal with the doctrine of atonement and of justification, we are not dealing with matters that are merely technical and theological. We are dealing with the everyday realities of the world we live in. There is no man living who escapes the realities of atonement and justification. We often speak of someone and say that he is trying to justify himself. We mean that here is a person who is guilty, who is trying to make himself out to be righteous. Because every man feels the need for justification. It is an inescapable necessity. And every man, in one way or another, tries to make atonement for his sin, tries to wipe out his guilt by atonement. Let us, before we analyze this passage of scripture, deal with the reality of atonement in everyday life. It is the basic phenomenon of man's psychology. The word that is commonly used to describe it by psychologists, psychoanalysts, psychiatrists, however, is masochism. This is self-atonement. Now, in the older sense, masochism referred to a sexual crime whereby a man, before he committed the sinful act, submitted to a severe punishment voluntarily which was his payment in advance for the privilege of sinning. So that he was saying, I have bought the right to sin by submission to this punishment. But as this particular phenomenon was studied, it became increasingly apparent that masochism is far more general than in the sexual masochism. That masochism is self-punishment which guilty man brings upon himself in order to pay for his sin. And it has been called the basic neurosis of man, 
and the basic factor in the psychology of all men. We can agree that all people who are not Christians are masochists, that they are determined and governed by masochistic impulses. Perhaps one of the most commonly known forms of masochism is psychosomatic illness. And there are people who are very prone to psychosomatic illnesses. It is their way of punishing themselves for their sins. And the rationale behind it is, if I suffer enough, I will pay for my sins. Some years ago, I had the privilege of hearing Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of London when he was here in this country. He was lecturing to a medical society in Northern California, and I was one of the two non-medical men who was present to hear him, having been extended an invitation by a doctor. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones called attention to the prevalence of this kind of illness, and he cited the example and this was from his own practice of a very wealthy and powerful person He's in England. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was second royal physician to King George, and late in life as a, became a Christian and went into the ministry. But as a top cardiac specialist, he retained his position in medicine and served on many prominent committees in the British Medical Society. This particular prominent personage had been a healthy man for years and years, and then suddenly became seriously ill and went through one surgery after another. Just about everything that could be taken out of him was taken out of him over a period of several years, and again he was facing illness. And the specialist to which he went, began to suspect that this sudden series over a few years of serious illnesses had psychosomatic causes. And so he referred the man to Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones, studying the figures, saw the man in his church study. When the man went to the office and went in, he was shocked and offended that he was not in a medical office, but in a minister's office. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones told him he believed that his illness had a spiritual root, that he was a deeply guilty man and he was inflicting self-punishment upon himself. The man was furious got up and said he was going to leave, he was going to enter a protest against this kind of treatment. He had come for medical advice and he had been referred ostensibly to a specialist and so on. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, nevertheless, the fact remains that you have been a desperately sick man repeatedly in recent years. And you will continue to be ill until 
you face the fact that the root cause of your sickness. A consequence, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, is that the man broke down. Confessed that indeed he had gained tremendous power a few years ago by wronging a man. The man had committed suicide and he had no family to whom he could make amends. He wanted to make atonement somehow, to make recompense. But there was no one to whom he could make amends. And so he was atoned by self-punishment and steadily killing himself. He left that office a Christian, having found his atonement in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But this is a common form of masochistic activity. Psychosomatic ailment. Then again, gambling is another common form of masochism. The gambler knows that the odds are against him. He gambles, although he doesn't admit it openly, he gambles to lose. When I lived in Nevada, I used every summer a dealer from Harold's Club who came up into that country to hunt. And he used to say that he had never seen but one man leave Harold's Club a winner. And he said a lot of people talk about their winnings, but he said the only man I ever saw go out ahead is a man who was so drunk he passed out at the roulette wheel while he was still ahead. And he said we could stand at the door and hand him a $20 bill as they walked in and never lose a nickel. They gambled to lose, he said. Now he may have overstated it when he said no one walked out a winner, but I don't believe he was too far from the truth. And certainly he believed, and there was no hesitation in his mind, that they gambled to lose, and they never gambled faster and harder than when they were ahead. They had to lose. Because the purpose is to lose. One man in Nevada, whom I knew, gambled so heavily that he was on the verge of losing everything, his home, his business, and was suddenly rescued out of this situation by an unexpected inheritance. But his immediate reaction was to gamble all the more desperately and then to lose everything. I buried a friend a few years ago, not a Christian, very likable man, who came from a very prominent family in the Midwest, his father was mayor of one of the major cities. Between his discharge after World War II and his death in 1957, two or three times he accumulated between 40 and 50,000. But this man, guilt-ridden, could never rest when he accumulated money. 
And although he was not normally a gambler, when that money began to accumulate, he could no longer eat nor sleep. He lived on coffee and cigarettes until finally he would drop everything and head for Nevada. Then come back a relaxed and happy man after he'd lost every last penny. For a time, his masochistic drive had been quietened but only for a time. Alcoholism is another form of masochistic activity in self-punishment. And very often, some women will masochistically, deliberately marry, knowingly marry an alcoholic because they want a cross to bear. And some of the ugliest experiences I've had in the ministry, if not the ugliest, have come from wives of alcoholics who have quit drinking. And they're wrapped with something to be told. They have been robbed of their cross. I talked with someone from the Alcoholics Anonymous once who told me that this was quite a common problem. With other people, burden-bearing of other forms becomes a means of masochistic atonement. Some people will masochistically work for the downtrodden and oppressed. Although they themselves have no love for minority groups or for the Negroes, for example, they will become passionate advocates of Negro rights, of the Negro cause, and speak endlessly about loving the Negro. When they seed with hatred within. But this is a masochistic form of burden bearing. This is their way of punishing themselves. In one academic community, a faculty wife who had never in her married life once cooked a meal for her husband and two sons or done the laundry because she considered herself above such things, she was the lady, was quite famous among the graduate students for the work she did in their home. If any graduate student's wife had a baby or was ill, she was in there to do the ironing, to do the cooking, to do the mending, and everything necessary, but never in her own home. It was her way of being a public saint to atone for her private guilt. Thus, many public works, charitable works, are means of atonement. Injustice collecting is another form. Some people are injustice collectors. They continually put themselves in a situation, force themselves into a situation where people are going to be offended and act against them. 
and they will assume an injured innocence and will collect these instances of injustice and continually talk about how so many people have let them down or hurt them or disappointed them. This is their form of masochistic atonement. The will to failure in some people is again a form of masochistic atonement. They will to fail. One scholar in the field, Theodore Wright, in his study, Masochism in Modern Man, has written, and I quote, The unconscious force which drives people to deny themselves enjoyment and success, to spoil their chances in life or not to make use of them, may be more accurately defined as the need for punishment. Unconsciously, these people inflict punishment on themselves, to which an inner torch has sentenced them. Not only are these punishments expected, but they are un even unconsciously desired. Suffering is aimed at unconsciously, even if they do not know or do not want to know it. These individuals act as if they were controlled by stringent moral laws and prohibitions, and as if they were forced to punish themselves for disobeying them, and of course. Another scholar, E.J. Warner, has written a very telling book, again from a totally non-Christian perspective, titled The Urge to Mass Destruction. This masochistic impulse is ultimately suicidal. Because man feeling his guilt and his sin, his sin, feels the need for punishment and the penalty of death. And so his activities become suicidal progressively. And the more deeply guilty a culture becomes, and the more it departs from God, the more suicidal it will become until it is governed by what Warner calls the urge to mass destruction. Warner, writing approximately ten years ago, said that this urge to mass destruction was taking over the politics of modern man, so that our modern politics is the politics of the urge to mass destruction. These men are all talking about atonement, about the desperate, the crying need for atonement in the heart of man. And it's a sad fact that the pulpit doesn't recognize that everything we deal with every day is wrapped up in this mad desire for self-atonement, for atonement without Christ. The advertisers realize it. Advertising is based on death psychology, and death psychology is based upon the recognition that people want atonement. They want to be rid of their sense of guilt and have a feeling of purity and cleanliness. And so what do you do? 
You sell them the idea that a new car will give them that feeling of floating on a cloud of clean, white purity. And all the television ads of the cars emphasize this picture of a floating power into a world of purity and cleanliness. New furniture, a new home, so that it's a new life, a new beginning. Everything cellophane wrapped and sterilized including food until it is no longer fit to eat because what you are selling is not food but new life. And a few years back, a new soap hit the jackpot. It became one of the best sellers in the soap industry because of one simple sentence which tied up all these things and offered purification, atonement, a new life in one sentence. As the TV ads drummed it across and the sales zoomed, for the first time in your life, feel really clean. Use that. <laughs> what they were offering was cleansing and justification, all wrapped up in a bar of soap. Cheap atonement. This is modern man. He is a masochist. He is punishing himself. He is hungry for cleansing. He is hungry for atonement, for justification. But he doesn't want it in Christ. And this is the only place where man can truly find cleansing, atonement, regeneration. In centuries before our Lord came, the prophet Isaiah described what our Lord was to do. Behold, my servant shall deal foolishly. He shall prosper. His kingdom shall prevail, and the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But how? through a way that shall be a source of amazement to the nation. Shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. But many shall be astonished at him. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. This way shall seem to be one that mars him, and the word mark conveys the impression of looking like a leper. This shall be the epitome of everything that seems wrong. But so shall he sprinkle, so shall he cleanse many nations. The king shall shut their mouth again. For that which hath not been told them shall they speak. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Men shall see him as unclean, undesirable, that it is he who cleanses and he who frees men in their heart's desire.
so that he who is regarded as utterly unclean and himself in great need of purification will rather the priest himself sprinkle water and blood and purify many nations. And then Isaiah goes on to declare, Who hath believed our report? Who hath believed this gospel? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Those who believe this doctrine are those to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed. Those who by God's grace are turned in their hearts to God. A double comparison by our Lord's right from the beginning. We have seen the man to be the epitome of the eternity. God is a tender son. The word there is a technical one in the Hebrew, which means the same thing as what farmers are considered as a shepherd. Out of the rest of our vine or meat, New grace will come. And then cut these up so they will not hide up from the work from the truth. And so over Israel, you can seem to be a something to cut off to prevent the true order of one of the earth's family. And so, maybe that's from the world for the people. And because God's God is that. What is the possibility of the world? We have no sense of coming to one of these doubts and those who do now for the practice of the past, which he represents that which he claimed God telling to men. You are not practice here, then the people Thank you. 
of Jesus Christ and his atoning work. And so we are free men. This is the glorious liberty of the sons of God. This is Christ we are here. All we like to have that thing. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us, John said. There is the total depravity of all men. But God in his sovereignty saves us by his grace, by the vicarious punishment of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We render satisfaction and expiation for So the servant's suffering was not accidental, but he was the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. This was his promise. He was the first to me with the purpose yet he opens not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a thief before her share is done. So he openeth not his mouth. He was afflicted and he suffered himself to be afflicted. Voluntarily and patiently. He set his face toward Jerusalem and was set forward to the city cut out. Because this was his destiny and declared, For this hour have I come. This is the road, the cross, to my kingship and to my dominion. And this is the way in which I gather unto myself my elect, a free people. This is the way to their freedom through the cross. Therefore, he set his face. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. That which caused him to die was the sin of those who he purposed to save his own elect. It was for them that he died, and it was their sin which brought him to the grave. Then Isaiah declared that his grave was destined to be with the wicked, but instead, even with his death and burial, his exaltation and glorification began. For he made his grave instead with the rich, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. For see, the Lord grew him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his deed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand.
Isaiah says that as he was taken from prison to be executed, who shall declare his generation? Died without children, died without heirs, died without family. But now, having given his life and atonement for many, he shall feed his seed. We are born of him and unto him. And we are his generation. The new humanity, born of the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Because he made himself an offering for sin. And the trespass offering, the primary idea was that of satisfaction. It was the sacrifice which paid the debt or satisfied the guilt and thereby freed the sinner. And so Jesus Christ, as our great high priest of both the free and the sacrificial life, performing the work of a priest and performing the sacrifice upon himself. And so, because of the travail of his soul, God the Father is satisfied. And by knowledge of Jesus Christ, many are justified, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so he divides the spoil with the straw. He is now the conqueror. And the kingdoms of this world are his. He can say as he declared unto his disciples, All power, <clears throat> all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore go ye and make disciples of all nations teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. For they were called, therefore, the children of the victory of Jesus Christ. And it is this victory which shall be manifest. For the only conclusion of the powers of evil around us because they are masochistic and theirs is the party picture, is destruction. And the urge to mass destruction can overwhelm them. Those who stand in terms for the atonement of Jesus Christ, whose conscience is cleansed and undefiled shall see the triumph of the Lord. This is our destiny. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee for this thy glorious work. We thank thee that thou hast delivered us from masochistic activity that thou hast made us new creatures in Christ, 
Teach us, therefore, day by day to forsake the ways of the old Adam and to with the fullness of, of our trust in Jesus Christ. Know that in him we have been cleansed, that in him we are more than conquerors. Make us strong in this faith we beseech thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions at this time? Yes. This is a question for a few minutes. Congressman, I think we so beautifully described the chip on the shoulder of the real complex of complex of the Jews. I once saw a group of Israeli dancers together with regular dancers in history of Jewish people. And their dance, uh, by and large, was done in a bent position of the shoulders. He only touched the ground as though they were carrying the burden of the world on their shoulders. Every once in a while they would leap toward heaven and their hands raised toward heaven and then immediately drop down into this bent position. Very. Well, you will find in every people these qualities. Uh, in one of the succeeding Sundays, I will deal with the fact that modern anthropologists are able to, uh, to uh, describe cultures in terms of guilt. This is so basic to every culture that cultures can be described by the way they deal with guilt. This is the basic characteristic of it. And this, to me, is all the more revealing since this classification comes from people who have nothing but hatred for the gospel. Just as the descriptions of masochism have been given to us by men who have a, an intense hatred of the faith because they recognize that here is something that gives an answer to this. And the prominent scholars in this field, I mentioned Wright, but even more prominent was the late Edmund Burglar and M.D. and psychiatrist, who was insistent that there was no escape, no escape from this masochistic activity. All you could do in effect was to grin and bear it. Uh, you all know probably that we're facing hate in this, uh, these study sessions, and uh, the demand for them is increasing. And I'm getting orders I see about every other day. But I did get a letter, and I want to read you this portion of it. Uh, one suggestion I would like to make is to ask people to speak up when they ask questions so that the mic can pick them up better. Now, I, even if you would talk very loud, I don't know how much we can pick up here, but frankly, uh, Mrs. Halbert offered some information here, and probably very good mm -hmm. to have on it. Now, I don't know whether she picked up, hardly at all, probably. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to ask the class for a suggestion on this. Now, let's can repeat a question. Short, but in a case of where someone here offers more information, and we see how to do that, I would like to have any comments, please. There are multi-directional mics that you can purchase that are very sensitive and will pick up the whole room. And I'm sure that we're really going to get that one from the top of the people who are very well. They have all been in another wire. I don't think it's a requirement of wire. They have mics that are so sensitive that they're directional, multi-directional. 
idea is to concentrate on the big cities and all cities possible. The U.S. is very vulnerable economically and physically. Black youth with the right orientation can stop this entire country. Small bands can damage the eight major dams that supply most of the electricity. Electricity means mass communications. Gasoline can be poured into the sewer systems in major cities and then uh, ignited. This would burn out communication lines in an entire city. What would emerge from this chaos? Most likely guerrilla warfare. I don't think the entire white community will fight, but the entire black community will be fighting. We call the white screen pumps. We feel that when TV stops, when the telephone no longer rings, their world will almost come to an end. Like during the major air raid, they will stay in the house. They sit and wait for television to come on. Now, I read this because this has been, of course, widely circulated. This is a library copy. You can get it in Los Angeles libraries. It's known across country. This has been reproduced widely. And the reaction of men in the face of this knowledge, for the most part, is to run away from it or to take courses of action that are only going to bring this down upon them more surely. And we need not be surprised, because when men are masochistic, they are going to invite in one way or another judgment upon themselves. They caught it. They are suicidal in their activities, both in the opposition camp and in our camp, where they are not Christian. So that facts will save no one. You can inform every American of this sort of thing and it will not change matters. They already know more than enough and they are running away from the knowledge they have. And there is nothing more offensive to many, many people than to inform them of these things because they don't want to acknowledge their existence. They are courting disaster and they're going to get it. May I ask a question that is on the subject? Surely. Uh, to explain a little bit, a friend of ours that is Italian and he looks Jewish, and therefore people, Jewish people, will tell him that they do not tell Christians. And uh, he denies that he is a Jew, but they won't believe it. Mm -hmm. So there's one, and I think it was a week or so, a friend. He told him, or this man that he knew, that there had been some other scrolls discovered that would definitely deny the version first, other than the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is this. In um, going back in the Old Testament, I don't know my Bible well enough, but it, what, is it Isaiah, the first mention of, or the prediction of, Isaiah 7.14, you have a specific prediction of the virgin birth. All right. Now, um, with that, when were the Dead Sea Scrolls written? Were they written prior to this or after? Or does anyone know? Is that not the, the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls are prior 
to our Lord's time, the majority of them that have so far been used are approximately 150, 200 B.C. Now, some possibly could have uh, come from as late as uh, 50 or 60 A.D., but uh, all the manuscripts of significance have so far been much older ones because the colony was established at least in the second century B.C. and apparently was of not any great significance by the uh, time of our Lord's life if it was still in existence. It may have been, but not more than uh, as a little group of survivors of no significance in their in that time. Now, as far as discovering any such manuscript, uh, the idea is nonsense. First, there are all kinds of manuscripts against the virgin birth that have turned up. Because, well, I don't put any stock in that sort of thing because this is the fact. The no sooner that the, and our Lord appeared and the Gospels were written, then you had all kinds of apocryphal works written by pagans, by Pharisees, by Sadducees, whose one purpose was to discredit the whole of the Gospel. So that there are documents of this sort, but it's significant as far as their date is concerned. They do not appear until after about 125 B.C. Now, there's a good reason why they do not appear until after that date. And we find virtually no references to the gospel uh, incidents or to the life of our Lord from the time of his life until a century later. And only then a few begin to appear, and it's by the end of the second century before they become common. And the reason is a very revealing one. If you hated everything that the life of our Lord represented, and neither the Jews nor the Gentiles wanted any part, it was something that they felt a horror for. This was a threat to them. And we know from the first Roman report we have by a consul that this was regarded as a menace. How are you going to deal with it when the evidence was so tremendous against you? And how are you going to say that, for example, uh, the miracles didn't take place or the resurrection didn't take place? when there were thousands of people who could say, well, I saw him die. And I saw him raise Lazarus from the grave. And he'd been in the grave three days at the time. Or I saw him take someone who was blind from birth and give him sight. And as many as 500 persons were with him on a single occasion after his resurrection. Now, if you wrote anything, at that time there were too many people who could say, now look, you are a fool. You, you are just writing out of spite and hatred 
And here are all these people that I know who are there, and I was there. You see why they kept silent. And not until not only these eyewitnesses had died and their children, who could say, well, my father was there, he saw these things, not until they were dead did they begin to write about it because they knew they couldn't answer it. And what they did instead was to go to all the records and destroy all reference. And we do know that many of the records uh, show that sentences were dropped out, which obviously pointed to Christ or to Paul too, because he was, it was such a blow, his defection, that they eliminated references to him. So that this in itself is one of the most amazing testimonies. Now, after it was all over, then they began to produce all kinds of stories and uh, documents, supposedly, that were so obviously fraudulent. They didn't convince even the unbelievers of the day that supposedly Jesus was born of an illegitimate uh, birth and that these things were not true and that his disciples uh, stole his body and pretended he had risen from the dead. It didn't work. All these stories and the documents that were circulated just fell flat. And so the result was two things. One, to show nothing but hatred and scorn. And one of the first references we found among the Romans to Jesus Christ is uh, a picture on a wall, apparently some soldiers or somebody in a barracks, of a man on a cross, except in place of a head, there's an ass's head. This was their expression of contempt for what he represented. The second was the all-out attempt to infiltrate and take over this new faith. And that all-out attempt was Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism, which is still with us and has been a part of many, many subversive and illuminist movements throughout history. And Gnosticism was a combination of all of the Roman and Greek pagan ideas and some Pharisaic ideas. And for a time it took over vast segments of the church. But of course it was ultimately defeated and rooted out. So that this idea of these manuscripts is just nonsense. 